0: Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1? uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And our scripture reading reading will be from verse 1 through verse 18. And uh, following the reading of scripture, we'll sing the glory of Patry, which is imprinted for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten Son of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten who is at the Father's side has made him known. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen the things necessary for you to know that you may, having God's comfort, live and die happily, your sin and misery, which we've covered, we're working on what, it, what you need to know to be delivered from uh, your sin and misery, and this Lord's Day number six has four questions. There's three main points I want to direct your thoughts to this morning. The first is, why must our mediator be both Uh, truly man and truly God. That's questions 16 and 17. Uh, The second overall point is who is our mediator, which is question 18. The third major point, question 19, is how do you know who your mediator is? It's a wonderful answer to that. As we think about theology, and some of you are more Ardent theologians than others. As we think about theology and Christology, the study of the doctrine of Christ, we uh, think particularly of two lines of truth, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We need to know who he is, and then we need to know what he did. And both are really significantly important. And in our study here of these uh, catechism Questions we're working on the person of Christ. And the first overall point in directing you to with questions 16 and 17 is, why must our mediator be at the same time truly man and truly God? <clears throat> and of all the cate- questions of the catechism, of course, question number one, what is your only comfort in life and death, is uh, supremely the best. But I have to say my favorite question um, Catechism question uh, 16, but particularly 17. You, those that have been here for a while, you've heard me quote it a number of different times <clears throat> in the course of time. Just, it just resonates with, to me, it's such powerful truth. I, uh, I just really love it. But what questions 16 and 17 are doing is they're answering what question 15 brought up. Uh, Question 15, which we covered last time, asked the question, what sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? It had talked about how uh, a man, even a perfect man, could not stand in our stead and satisfy God's just and holy wrath. Other creatures, the blood of bulls and goats, can never take away sin. So the question 15 was, well, what kind of mediator do we need then? And the answer was, one who is truly man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also truly God. And so what it brought up in that question, it's working out in a little more detail in questions 16 and 17. And before we dive into that, it's perhaps would be helpful for us just to think about for a few minutes anyway, why is this so important? Why is it absolutely crucially necessary for you to know that the Messiah, the mediator, is truly man and truly God? Why is that an absolute necessity that you know that? Well, there are a couple things why it's important. I mean, it's part of the Bible, so obviously we know if it's in the Bible, it's important. But one of the things, one of the reasons it's important is without these two truths, you have no salvation. You cannot be saved. You have no hope of redemption. Because as we've already understood and learned, uh, no creature can take away, no creature can sustain God's wrath against your sin. No man, even if you could find a perfect man, a man without without. Sin without having committed sin. A perfect man. He's a finite man. And a finite man can never sustain infinite wrath. He would be consumed by it. He could maybe take the place of one person, but he sure couldn't take the place of all of us. So he had to be a man... But God, in his own person, in in him as his deity, he couldn't stand in the place of man. He couldn't take the place of man. So he couldn't provide forgiveness of sins. Only one who could suffer as a man in our place and yet have the power of Almighty God within him to sustain the burden of that wrath could take away our sin. So without this truth, you have no salvation. And you all and and me standing here were just on a fool's errand. A second reason why it's really very important for you to know these things is because this has been the battleground of the church since its very beginning. This has been the arena where there have been such tremendous battles uh, since, since the time of Christ. And I've mentioned Hermann Huxema. He has one of several really good uh, works on the Heidelberg Catechism. And I'd like to read a few paragraphs of his where he talks about this battle. There are other good resources. Louis Burkhoff has a wonderful book called The History of Christian Doctrine, which goes through some of this information. You can find it in other good resources. But just to read a few paragraphs from him, he says, We must remember that at a very early date in the history of the New Testament church, all these different elements of the truth concerning the Savior were denied, one after another, by false teachers. It was denied that Christ possessed a real and complete human nature. There were some who taught that his human nature was only such an appearance, but not in reality, not of our flesh and blood. Then, too, at an early date of our era, the real and essential Godhead of Christ was attacked and denied. Christ was a highly gifted and exalted man who, according to his exalted position in office, is worthy of the title Son of God, but who is not in one in essence, and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And by some, both the real Godhead and the real manhood of Christ were denied. And when they explained that through the incarnation, the human and divine natures had merged or fused into one nature, they were in effect denying the person of Christ. One of the things that people would do is they would say the Godhead and his his deity and his manhood so merged together that it was blended and there was not the unity of a person with two natures. It was all kind of muddled together. Either that or they were totally separate and he was completely schizophrenic. And, but it's two natures in one person without confusion, mixture, uh, or misunderstanding. He really became one person in two natures. And the early church battled this and came to some helpful conclusions in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and in the Council of Chalcedon in 381 A.D. And we use the Nicene Creed. It's a a great statement of faith of the early church in our faith, in the character and the person of Christ and his work. And as he sums up this debate, and it goes on to our own day, people deny these things today. People are confused about these things today. And you need to know these things. And as uh, he ends his discussion, he says, salvation cannot be accomplished except by exactly such a mediator as is described in these two questions. And answers with respect to his chief requirements. Deny them and you deny salvation. And that's what's at stake. To get these things clear. And to be guarded in your faith and in your heart against the errors that are so prevalent. So we come to question 16 under this. General point, why must he both be both truly man and truly God? And question 16 asks the question, why must the mediator be truly man and also perfectly righteous? And the answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature, which is sin, should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Uh, Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We looked at it last week, but let's look at it again. God has ordained and revealed in the Scriptures that uh, we are all accountable for our sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. So unless there's a remedy provided, you're accountable and will be held accountable for your sin. And as the other Scriptures that we've looked at tell us, Another man and another creature cannot satisfy. Um, as just as sin entered the world, Paul said, through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And death came to all men because all sin. It was through a man that sin came. And as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so that through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous. One man got us into this mess. Another man, the God man, will get us out. And here we have in Hebrews two this again this description. Since the Hebrews two fourteen, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in the flesh. And uh, turn to Hebrews seven twenty six. This man had to be perfectly righteous. In Hebrews 7, 26, he speaks about our high priest, Christ. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And the testimony was, is clear. Even the thief on the cross who had been blaspheming Christ, when God converted him when God got a hold of him. He turned and turned to the other thief and told him, we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Christ never committed the least sin. And it's very clear, Christ did not have any actual sin, but it's also clear, it shows the necessity of the virgin birth, that Christ also did not have original sin. You and I are born with a sinful nature, a corrupt nature that's inclined to sinfulness. And that's what the the inheritance, one of the inheritances we've received from our parents, uh, Adam and Eve. And we're born with that original sin, and then we add insult to injury, and we commit actual sins. So we not only have the corrupt heart, we act on the corrupt heart and disobey God's holy commandments. And this is where Jesus is unique. He was conceived by the unique, miraculous union of the Godhead with humanity by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit without the intervention or contamination of man so that he could be our mediator. God and man in one person. He could be truly man and truly God. And question 17 brings up that point. Why must he in one person be also truly God? And this is what I love about this. It's such a strong reality Because in his manhood, a man cannot bear the burden of God's wrath against sin. It can't be done. But Christ, in his manhood, he had to be in his manhood to stand in our place. In his manhood, by the power of his Godhead, he could bear the burden of God's wrath against our sin. Only he could do that. Only he was able to do it. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy that our God is a consuming fire. He consumes iniquity. In Isaiah 53, that wonderful passage about the Messiah, the Son, tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Uh, Some translations have to bring him to grief. But God in his sovereign wrath had to crush him. And only by his Godhead could he sustain that burden of God's wrath against sin. He alone can do that. We need that. We have no hope without it. And by sustaining the burden of God's wrath in his human nature, he obtained for us righteousness and life. He purchased redemption. He made it so that our God could forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God made it so that we could be restored. All that which we lost in the fall, he's restored to us by grace. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks to you about <clears throat> putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's what you and I receive from, as the benefit of the work of Christ on our behalf. Then question 18, our second main point, who is our only mediator? It's interesting the number of different resources that comment on this particular catechism. Many of them say almost, well, it's about time. Time. I mean, we've been wondering or thinking about who is it that's going to be our mediator? Who is it that's going to deliver us? He finally tells us who is this mediator, the one who in one person is both truly God and and real man, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it is. Um, Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As we read in John 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is at the Father's side has made him known to us. John would make the statement to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's through Christ. It's through Jesus. Him personally that God is revealed. And he brings to us uh, this great blessing, uh, the Ursinus, Zacharias Ursinus, who wrote the Catechism, is drawing us to 1 Corinthians one thirty. So I'd like you to turn there just for you to see this verse, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians one thirty. This is what he's quoting from as... Um, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So wisdom is kind of a, the, the heading and the filling out of that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jeremiah says of the Messiah that he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. He's our righteousness. Um, Hebrews says both the one who makes men holy and those who are are, holy, are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is holy, and he makes us holy. <clears throat> he has provided redemption. Paul writes, "In whom Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So we need a mediator who is truly man and truly God. We need Jesus as that mediator. So how do we know all this is true? And this answer is wonderful. How do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten son. This answer gives to us in this most marvelous way, in such a succinct way, uh, a description of the entire Theme of the scriptures, the unity of the Bible. If you ever wondered about the unity of the Bible, does it talking the same story? Well, this question, this answer gives it to you. It's telling the same story from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all the same story, told in many wonderful different ways. And it's the unity of the covenant of grace. It's the unity of the Bible. And he goes through the different. Areas where this is talked about in paradise, in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, God's statement to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then he, one of the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. You have this wonderful statement of the first promise of the covenant of grace that then is filled out throughout the rest of the scripture. The rest of the Bible is all about that. It's all about that. The fulfillment of God to bring about the the defeat and downfall of the, the evil one and the blessing of the people of God. The patriarchs talked about it. Jacob, when he's making his prophecies in Genesis 49, says... He's a patriarch. He says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He's not talking about only his son Judah. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about The, the authority is going to stay in Judah until Jesus comes and then to him is going to be the obedience of the nations. He's going to Stand above all nations and give them to the Father on the last day. It's all in the scriptures. The prophets over and over again talked about Christ. All the prophets testified about him. He was represented in the sacrifices. He's fulfilled by the Son. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons turn to Luke chapter 24 and we'll conclude on this just as a reminder of the unity of the Bible um, is this just people telling us the Bible has a unified message no you have these words from your Savior Jesus Christ in Luke chapter in, in more places than this but here in Luke chapter 24 first of all 20, verse 25 and 27 He's talking here to the disciples on the road to Emmaus because they didn't understand what was going on. And in verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself and then the same chapters go down to verse 44 here Jesus is visiting with his disciples in the upper room the night in which he was raised from the dead and he said to them this is what I told you while I was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. It was the Jewish designation of the parts of the Old Testament. The law, Moses, the prophets, which included some of what we call historical books. And the Psalms, which included the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and Chronicles. What Jesus is saying is, you read the Old Testament... It's all about me. It's all about me. When you hold your Bible in your hand, it's the story of Christ. The richness of that story throughout the ages and God's work on our behalf. And you you and I have a treasure in the Bible, a treasure of truth that exalts our Savior and gives us hope for the end whenever that comes, because it will be fulfilled. So as we reflect on all this, my encouragement to you, hold fast to the truth that Jesus indeed is your mediator and your only mediator. He's truly man, truly God in one person. Find in him the benefits of redemption and see in your Bible the unified story of your Savior from beginning to end. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the richness of your love. Thank you for providing for us the um, glorious truth of, of your Son. Help us to look into to him for our, our redemption, for our righteousness, our holiness, our hope for now and for the future. That in the abundant richness of your love, we might have that strength of hope for today and for tomorrow. And that you would be honored and glorified in that. Uh, Please bless us as we uh, go from this place. And uh, may you give us your strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.